0: This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. They called it Tuna Fever. It happened in October 1999, 30 miles off the coast of Cape Cod. There was a run, an unusual run, of numerous and large tuna. One of the local fishermen, a guy named Russ, was quoted by a journalist stroking his white beard and saying, there's tuna everywhere. We got the carpenters going out. We got the electricians going out. Everybody's going out to catch tuna. There's a big problem, though, is that these inexperienced fishermen with small boats would hook a 700-pound tuna, and they would realize they were over their heads. Literally, they'd be over their heads because their boat would get dragged to places they never thought they would go, and the boat would capsize, and the Coast Guard was like just busy rescuing people, these inept fishermen. I read that story like seven years ago, and I'm going, I got to use that in a sermon (laughs) because ain't that like life, you know? You're out there, you're doing life, you're casting away, and you're going, I got the tuna. I got the tuna, I got, I'm reeling it in. I'm in charge. Look at this big fish, everybody. And then before you know it, you realize, oh no, that tuna's got me. (laughs) Isn't that like life? You know what it's like to be hooked? I bet you do, I do. Somebody disappoints you, somebody hurts you. You're hooked by anger, by resentment. You can't let it go. Maybe you look at your life, you're scrolling through social media and you see, oh, that person, oh, they got an amazing life. Oh, that person's doing something amazing. Oh, that person's in Switzerland. Oh, that person's spending Valentine's Day with their sweetheart, you know? And I'm like, you're like, what about my life? I wish I had a better life. And you're hooked by envy. Or you're just hooked by anxiety, you're hooked by fears hooked by discouragement, so discouraged that some days maybe you wonder if you even want to keep living. Maybe you've had that thought this week for some of you. Or maybe some of you are hooked by apathy. You're just hooked by indifference. Can that hook you? Yeah, that can hook you. A friend of mine, when I was younger, a mentor of mine said, you know, I think when most men reach middle age, and I don't know if this applies to women too, maybe it does, he said they... they, they Form a silent pact with the devil in which they tell the devil, hey, look, devil, if you don't bother me, I won't bother you. Let's just coexist. Let's just get along. That's apathy. That can hook us and just drag us along. Lent is that season of the church year where the church in her wisdom and goodness and care for our souls says, hey, we're going to carve out 40 days. And in this 40 days, one of the main things we're going to do is slow down, attend to our souls, and ask ourselves, what is hooking me? What am I going to ask the Lord Jesus to free me from this Lent? In the uh, first reading, Genesis chapter 3, And and there's actually two Bible stories that are looming in the background of this story, underneath this story, in the greater context of this story. The first one is Genesis 3. And they're both temptation stories, stories of temptation. Temptation number one in the garden. Adam and Eve are in this perfect setting. It's beautiful. They have everything they need. Their needs are met. God has clearly spoken to them. And then the devil comes along and says, did God really say that? I don't know if it was that clear, Eve and Adam. I'm just just not sure. It was just a little fuzzy. Can you really believe that? Can you believe in a God like that? I don't think that's a good God. And so they're tempted. And what happened? We all know. They got hooked. They failed. The other story that's in the background, and actually Jesus quotes from it two times in Matthew chapter 4, is the story of the children of Israel... They're coming, they've are coming. they been brought out of Egypt. They've been delivered from 400 years of bondage and slavery. They're in the wilderness, and God keeps saying to them, listen to me, obey me, trust me. And they're tempted. And what do they do? They get hooked. They get hooked by hardness of heart. They get hooked by stubbornness. They get hooked by mistrust. These are our stories. These are the stories of the Jewish people, but there are stories. This is the story of the human race. We get tempted. We get hooked, and it's temptation fail. So during Lent, we slow down and we ask, What is hooking me? What do I need to get free from? But we're also asking another question, and that question is Is there a place? Is there. A space? Is there a person? Is there somewhere where I can go with all of my hookedness, with all of my hookability, with all of my temptability? Because we're eminently temptable. and And my failures and my sin and my shame and my loneliness about my failures, is there a place I can go where I can find freedom, where I can confess it, where I can bring it, where I can come into the light, where I can find forgiveness, where I can find freedom and be set free from the failure and the guilt and the condemnation and the shame and then also empowered to walk in a new way? There is a place. We'll get to that. So, in this passage found on page 809 in your Pew Bibles, and I invite you to turn there to follow along with me because we'll be walking through this, this great Lenten story together, Matthew chapter 4. I want to talk about three things in tent- of temptation the stakes of temptations, what's at stake? Why does it matter? And then the hero in our temptation and the savior from our temptations. The stakes. The hero, the savior. First, the stakes. Look at verse 1 of Matthew chapter 4. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, the first question I have when I bring to this text is, Why is the Spirit of God leading the Son of God into the wilderness in order to be tempted? Didn't Jesus tell us to pray in this way? Lead us not into temptation. So why is Jesus doing something that he tells us doesn't want us to do? Well, I'll get back to that at the very end, so just hold on to that question. The second question I have is to be tempted by the devil. And some of you might be thinking, "Devil? Really? You people at this church, you believe in a devil? You believe in Satan? You know the guy with a horns and the pitchfork and the red suit and the long tail, the little guy on my shoulder and then there's an angel on my other shoulder and well not exactly. There is no pictorial image here of the devil in this story but there is something that Christians have assumed for 2,000 years and simply put it goes like this we believe that according to the Bible that there is a Force in the world that is bent on evil. And this force is not just general, abstract, but it's personal. It's personal and it has a will, it has a purpose, it has intention. Secular psychiatrist M. Scott Peck shocked many of his colleagues a number of years ago when he wrote a book called People of the Lie in which he talked about the presence of a real and personal and purposeful evil called Satan. And he says, about midway through that book, he says, I quote, I now know Satan is real. I have met it, he said. I could relate to that quote. I remember when I was about 15, 16 years old in my nice bedroom my nice family in the suburbs of Minneapolis, thinking, considering, weighing, reading the Bible and thinking about becoming a follower of Jesus. And I was not a follower of Jesus. And I remember during that time of deciding and being drawn by Christ, I felt on a number of occasions a force for evil, literally in my bedroom, a personal force a purposeful force trying to intimidate me, trying to scare me, trying to put fear in me, trying to whisper into my mind, if you follow Jesus, it'll ruin your life. You will be ruined. Think of what it will cost you. Think of the consequences. Don't do it. It was more than just a psychological phenomenon in my head. And if you really want to know what else happened, I'll tell you. But that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is that there was a will bent on preventing me from getting close to Jesus. And as you might imagine, it didn't work because um, I'm here, but it worked for at least a couple years. We see in this text the purpose of Satan in this temptation and really in any temptation. The word devil or diablo means to to divide, to split, to cut off. So what does the devil want to cut us off from, split us from? The presence of God the Father, the presence of the triune God somehow split us off from his presence. Look at how this plays out in this text. The end of uh, chapter 3 There's a voice from heaven, it's the voice of God the Father at Jesus' baptism, and the voice says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Beautiful. So Jesus goes into the desert basking in that sense of belovedness that the triune God has been pouring out love from all eternity Love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, love for all of creation, pouring out love. And what does Satan do in the wilderness? He tries to split the Son of God from that. Look at what he says in verse, the devil says in verse three, and the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, if that's really true, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And then in verse six, And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. See that attempt to split, to cut off. Now, the first temptation is, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And Jesus says, Man shall not live by bread alone, quoting Deuteronomy quoting the story of the children of Israel in the desert. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. Now, what's so bad about a little bread? Jesus is hungry. The guy's been fasting for 40 days. He's hungry. Give him some bread. What is wrong with that? Well, I think there could be a number of different ways to look at this, but one of the ways to look at this is that this is a time that Jesus has set aside, uh, orchestrated by the Holy Spirit to be in the desert, particularly in a time of fasting to listen to the voice of God the Father. In our Anglican tradition, and our cycle of our church year, we have times of feasting and we have times of fasting. Easter is a time of feasting. Lent is a time of fasting. So we deny ourselves some things that we would normally have in order to tune in better, to listen. It's a season. Jesus is in one of those seasons right now of fasting, not feasting. And he wants to carry out this fasting season to to the end, and it's a time to listen to the voice of his father. And Satan wants to split him from that voice. Second temptation. Verse six, Satan says, "If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you on their hands; they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone." Satan is saying, "Look, if you're really the son of God, prove it. Demonstrate it. Here's how you demonstrate it." First, on my terms, Satan says, I want you to do something phenomenal, something amazing. You just leap from that mountain and just go flying through the air to certain death and watch God the Father scoop in at the last minute and put down his almighty hand and lift you up. Now that would be incredible. That would be a great PR stunt. Could you do that, Jesus? That would really prove it. He's telling him, you gotta be, do something extraordinary. You can't just bask in the voice of your father saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. You need a deeper, better, more enhanced identity than that. You know, in our baptism, we anoint the child or the adult being baptized. You are marked as Christ's own forever. And that's your identity. That's your primary fundamental identity deepest, best identity. We want something better. That's not good enough. So Satan says, yeah, 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 blah, 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 Jesus loves you, you know, the Father loves you, blah, blah, blah. You need something better. What's that for you? I know for me it's something like this. I want to be the amazing Christian, super pastor, invulnerable, invincible, untemptable, and yet humble and highly likable. And I've been on that path for like 30 years. Not just humble, but the humblest. Either you will believe the voice of God, the Father, or you will believe the voice of Satan. That's the stakes. Satan wants to get you hooked, split, distracted, obsessed, self-deceived, ashamed, defeated. Whatever it takes to get your eyes off of Jesus And your heavenly father and the power of the spirit. There's a German pastor named Helmut Tielecki that my good friend Deacon John introduced me to. Helmut Tielecki has his great little book called Between God and Satan, which was really inspirational for my sermon. At one point, Tielecki says this It is for this reason that we flee into our work or into the stupefying turmoil, into pleasure and lust, but at any rate into something. Tielecki talks about the the crowd is what he calls it, the noise, the busyness, the voices all around us, the distractions that carry us along like an immense wave, leaving us feeling happy, oh so happy, and yet drifting off into places we don't want to go. The interesting thing is, is that Thielicke wrote this in 1938 in Germany when the Nazis were building for power, when Hitler's power was coalescing, when they were preparing to kill six million Jewish people, when German leaders in the military and in the church would go home and listen to Mozart and Beethoven and plan their little lives while the the war was brewing on the horizon and the destruction of the Jewish people was taking place. And they were talking about a blue-eyed, blonde-haired, Aryan Jesus while being split off from the real Jesus. The stakes are high. Satan really wants to split us away from God the Father. Is there a place where we can come home, where we can find rest, where we can find healing, where we can find deliverance? Yes, we find it in this passage. In the hero and in the savior of our temptations. The hero of our temptations. Did you notice three times it says that Satan tempted, tempted, tempted. Now, if you're an odds maker and you're betting on who's going to win here, which I hope you don't, but if, you're, if, if you want to do that, you got to be betting against Jesus here because he, the odds are stacked against him. This is like a wrestling match where one guy has both arms tied behind his back and his legs tied together, and the other guy has freedom of movement. Jesus is hungry. He's alone. He's in the desert. It's a perfect setup for temptation fail, to get hooked. And yet three times, Jesus does not get hooked. How? Why not? Well, look what he says three times. He says in verse 4, it is written. In verse 7, it is written, In verse 10, it is written. Where is it written? It's written in the Bible. It's written in the Hebrew Scripture. It's written in the Word of God. And so for three times, Jesus grounds himself in the truth, the real, the Word of God. And the original language is in the perfect tense, which means it's a past action which has present, ongoing effects. So it is written, and it is still, that Word is still being spoken as the book of, author of Hebrews says, God's word is, is living and active and sharper than any two-edged swords. It's alive. <clears throat> I love this in the second temptation. Satan comes along, and he quotes Scripture. Okay, you want to quote Scripture, Jesus? Well, here's a couple verses. What's wrong with Satan? Well, Jesus trumps his quote with a quote that basically says, Satan, you're a lazy Bible reader. You don't read your Bible very well. You're taking stuff out of context. You're just, like, snatching little things here and there. You're in a hurry, so you snatch little things. You quilt it on your pillow, you know. I don't know if Satan has pillows, but you're quilting it on your pillow, and you're going, oh, God says this. He doesn't really believe it. He doesn't obey it, but he pretends to to quote it. And Jesus says, oh, you're not getting the context. You don't get the big picture. Look, it also says, it also, the Word of God also says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Boom. I'm letting the Bible interpret the Bible. Jesus says. And you're not doing that, Satan. Now, I can say a lot more about the Word of God, but the thing, the thing I want to focus on is that this is how Jesus does it. He's showing us how to do it. He's showing us how to face temptation. And if you're thinking, like, there's a better way, there's a more mystical way, there's a, there's a more beautiful way, there's a softer, easier, more gentle way than, like, actually reading, marking, inwardly digesting, reading your Bible, even just some, a little bit every day, but regularly, consistently, and then maybe more and more. There is no better way. If Jesus had to do it, he's doing exactly what we had to do, we have to do, which is the same way. Jesus is our model. He's our example. We look at him and we go, oh, so that's how you do it. That's how you resist temptation. That's how you don't get hooked. You know, let's say... um, Let's say you play football, and you want to be a quarterback. What are you going to do as a young kid? You're going to go, oh, man, the way Patrick Mahomes like, turns on an angle and twists like this and throws its sidearm like that. Man, I want to be like that. I want to be like that quarterback. I want to throw like that. I was talking to my daughter, and she uh, she's, loves jazz singing. She studied jazz in college. And, and I said, who was your model for jazz? And she said, oh, Dad, you can't do any better than Ella. Ella Fitzgerald. Oh, what a voice. At one point, I was trying to grow more as a preacher, and I I discovered Dr. Gardner Taylor, the second most famous black preacher in in the country, a mentor to Martin Luther King Jr. called the the Dean of Black Preachers, the Poet Laureate of the Pulpit. And I read his sermon on Psalm 23, and I, I thought, oh, that's how you make a sermon sing, you know? And I wish I was more like that. So we look at Jesus and we say, that's how you forgive. That's how you stand on the truth of God's word. That's how you walk with sexual integrity. That's how you live a life of generosity. That's how you pray and trust your heavenly father and put everything into his care. That's how you bear your cross. That's how you go into the power of the resurrection. So our first cry in Lent is, Lord Jesus, make me more like you. And I want to encourage you this Lent. If you are in the habit of reading the Bible, if you're not, read a section of the Gospels every day, even if it's a short section, and begin that and end that with, Lord Jesus, make me more like you. Whatever it is in this, Lord, make me more like you. So Jesus is the hero of of our temptations, but if he's only that, if he's only our hero, if he's only our model, if he's only our example, it will crush us. Because he never sinned. The Bible tells us that repeatedly. He never sinned, but we do. We face temptations and get hooked. So back to my question, why was Jesus led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil when he tells us to pray, lead us not into temptation? Why is that? Well, the writer of the book of Hebrews would later give us a really clear answer for that. Here's the Bible explaining the Bible again. Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Why was he tempted? So he could help us in our temptations. So we say to him, I want to be like you, Jesus. And Jesus says to us, I really get you. I understand you. Not because I failed, but I know what it's like to be tempted, so I get you. I want us to grasp what this means. It means that at our lowest points, the most intense temptation, the points when we've gotten hooked, when we've failed, when we feel shame, when we feel cut off, when we feel alone, when we face our sin, and we just feel so lonely in it, and like, can life get any lower? He's gone even lower. Not because he sinned, but because he knows the depths of our temptation. That means when Bishop Stewart, in just a few minutes, when he will hold up the bread and say, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us, who did he die for? Did he die for pleasant people with respectable sins only? No, he died for all of us with all of our sins and all of our shame. That means there is a place that we can come to unburden ourselves, to confess, to walk in the light, and to be made whole. There's this beautiful scene in a a beautiful novel written by the South African writer Alan Payton. You may know him for a book he wrote called Cry the Beloved Country, but in his lesser-known book... He tells a story of race and class and apartheid, but I just want to focus on one scene. So in this scene, the main character, Peter, is a married police officer, and he is hooked. He's on the verge of having an affair. It's all set up. He just needs to act on it, and spoiler alert, he will act on it. So, But before he does, he knows he's in trouble. He knows he needs help. So he goes and visits his good friend, Cappy. And Cappy has been a good friend for a long time. At one point, the narrator says, Peter planned to say to Cappy, you must help me. You must help me in God's name because I have never told such things to a friend before. He wants to do that. And they talk, and they talk about their stamp collections, and they drink coffee, and Cappy plays some beautiful classical music on the piano. And then Peter gets up abruptly and goes home, and he doesn't tell. And the narrator says, ah, if Peter could have told Cappy, for where would he have found a man who would better understood and would not have shrunk from him, and yet he could not tell. I don't know if the novelist meant it this way, but Copy is a Christ figure. Isn't that like Jesus? He would have found a man who that nobody would have understood better, would not have shrunk from him, but even better than a human friend. Jesus will say, hey, take my hand. You're in that pit. You're hooked. Let me pull you out. Let me unhook you. That's what the church does. We help unhook each other. Now, you notice I talked about us being hooked. I talked about the devil. But then I'm ending with Jesus because that's where we look. Look right? For everything, for forgiveness, for deliverance, that you are not alone. There is a place where we can come from our many temptations and failure and shame and come home and be forgiven and be transformed day by day. May you come to him this Lenten season and know Jesus as the one who is present